thing just because of, you know, you're just not every day you're coming to church and you get a phone call that somebody that you expected to be here is not going to be here and never will be again. So that rattles you a little bit, and it's hard to collect your thoughts. But um, we're going we're gonna to proceed and see how this goes. I want to read to you some verses out of Hebrews uh, 8, uh, starting at verse 8. Hebrews 8.8. 8. For finding fault with them, he saith, this is God, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins, and their iniquities will I remember no more. I'm going to stop reading there. Does that reading bring any kind of excitement to you at all? Does it do anything for you? Can you imagine what, um, what it would have been like to be uh, a person under the old covenant and you knew here was the law? You really wanted to do what, was, what that law said, but you found yourself powerless to do that. What a quandary. I want to do the right thing and I can't. That's a quandary, folks. Today, we're on the other side of the cross. We're on the other side of the resurrection. I've entitled my thoughts this morning, Recapturing Resurrection, Power, and Excitement. Because we have this power that the resurrection brings, we understand what it is to be on this side of the grave, on this side of the cross, and to understand what it's like to have that law written right on our hearts, and to, and to have the power through, through the resurrection to live up to, to that um, to what's expected of us. Praise God for that. And it's not because of us. It's all because of Jesus. So I'd like to think a little bit about this word power and excitement. So if a person has power, you possess the ability to do something. That's just the definition of power. You have the possession to do whatever it is that you intend to do. And if you are excited, that means that you're stimulated, you're stirred up, you're aroused. It just plain down excites you. We understand excitement, don't we? When I thought of power and excitement, um, I had to think of, of man's um, uh, infatuation with both of those things. We're infatuated with power. It, you know, that's why new things keep coming out. A lot of times, if you look at something that's new and approved, there's more power involved in the thing. I mean, you know, our great-grandfathers or grandfathers were happy to farm with little putt-putt 40-horse tractors, but it was a whole lot better than a four-mule team, I'll tell you that. So there was a step up in power. We liked that. You look at, at uh, technology, it, it's always about something bigger, faster, more powerful, more memory, all these things, and we like that. We like that power. I couldn't help but think of, um, of in the late 60s, early 70s, they had these things called muscle cars. 
and they were these two-door coupes with big engines in them. And if my memory serves me correctly, they were all red, they all had a hood scoop, and they all had a spoiler, and when you mashed it, it laid rubber for a mile. <clears throat> That's my recollection. <coughs> Our farm that I grew up on uh, lay at an intersection where back the road a mile from that intersection, there was this little town called Whirlytown, okay? And it seemed like the people in Whirlytown loved their muscle cars. And they loved to show me, or I don't know me, but they loved to show the world that when they hit that intersection and headed for Greencastle, that they could get rubber for quite a little while with those muscle cars. And they proceeded to show us that. And so that's, that's, that's a memory I have, this, 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 um, uh, this power. Well, unfortunately, gas prices and emission standards put an end to muscle cars. But uh, I found it interesting when I was just researching a little bit, you know, what's the definition of a muscle car? You, I Googled it, I'll have to be honest, just to see what, 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 what is defined by that. And I like this. It said, muscle cars were built to lure buyers who wanted more than a mundane car. Okay? Well, today I want to talk to you about a resurrected life that's for people that want more than a mundane life. All right? So there's some power here that we can tap into. Well, how about excitement? Do you live for excitement? Do you like to be stimulated and aroused? What's the thing that brings you excitement to your life? For a child, it might be his next birthday or the next big event in his life. You know, when you're a child, at least this is the way I recall it, you kind of lived from one big event to the next. And that was your, that was your excitement. That's kind of what kept you going. I mean, after all, time kind of moves slow. You need something. Um, and I don't know, as I think about it, sometimes us adults aren't just a whole lot different than that, I guess. Um, I've heard people wax eloquent for quite a little time about big trucks and big bucks and things like this, and it makes them excited, you know. I, I've never matured to the point that I could get excitement out of some of these things, but some people do, you know, and that's all right, uh, I guess, as long as it's within reason. But anyway, uh, all these things I'm talking to you about reflect a fleeting euphoria that is not lasting. It just doesn't last very long. So if you get the big buck, why is it you go out next year for a bigger one? All right? You just need it again, see. It just it isn't lasting. Also I had to think of uh of a couple uh men that I know and I and I like these men. They're they're interesting men. And the one the one person in particular, he's the uh, head of the seed cordon company that I sell for, and he's a very passionate man and he's a dynamic speaker. And when he gets takes the floor and he gets up there and he starts talking to you about his seed and why you should plant it, at the end of the day, you're convinced you should do that because he's very passionate. He can tell you why and he convinces you of these things. <clears throat> Another man I had to think of is uh, an older gentleman I learned to know over the years here. He's, he's in his 70s. I guess a young man, aren't he? Anyway, um, but he, he's, a, he's a, again, a very passionate person. And lately, he's on this kick about uh, cover crops. He just loves what this can do to his soil, and he's into this. And he, that's all he wants to talk about. And he sits up to 2 o'clock in the morning looking at podcasts about cover crops and what it can do. And he told me, he said, uh, Dwight, he said, it's, it's something that makes a 70-year-old man want to get out of bed in the morning. And I'm like, well... Praise the Lord for that. I guess there's something to be said for that, I guess, you know. But uh, just a passionate person. 
Well, what causes people to become excited about these things or a thing? Well, perhaps it's newness, perhaps it's uh, the anticipation of a, an adventure and the thrill that that can bring. My children will recognize this whenever we plan a trip. I tell them that the most exciting part about a, tri a trip is just looking forward to it. I mean, once you take it and you come back again, it's all over and it's done, you know. If you just constantly be looking forward to it, that would be a whole lot more exciting to me. Now, they don't agree with me on that, but uh, so we do occasionally do these things. Uh, perhaps it's monetary value that brings excitement. Uh, the difference something can make in our lives. Um, unexpected good news will bring us excitement. So on the one hand, we have things that bring us excitement. What causes us to lose excitement about a thing? Well, familiarity. Perhaps it's, it's the disappointment in what we expected the thing to deliver. It just didn't deliver. Um, I, I've had experiences like that. Um, uh, last, last spring, I, I, I demonstrated a piece of equipment that I thought would be where it was at. And it just didn't deliver. I just was disappointed with it. And I just really lost excitement about that thing in a hurry. Wear and strain that time can bring will cause us to lose excitement about something. Um, muscle cars turn old. Okay, They turn into beaters. And they, they get scrapped. Um, sadly, I recently had a man tell me of how his... His marriage had went the same way. He had just told me this in a, in a very matter-of-fact way. He said, you know, you can't wake up in the morning and go two different directions all day and have a good marriage. And he said, we just grew apart and we just divorced. He's just like, that's the way it was. That's, that's sad. But the excitement was no longer there. Come with me to John 20. We were uh, talking in our Sunday school lesson about the various accounts of the resurrection. And uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here in John 20, but I just want to read um, well, I'm going to read verse 4. Here it's talking about Peter and John, and it says they both, they ran both together. And that other disciple did outrun Peter and came to the first of the sepulcher. And if we drop down there a little bit. Um, oh, verse 2. I missed that one. Here again, it's talking about the women that came. It says, and she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter. So we see, we see this, um, this running thing. All right? We see these grown adults and, and, and ladies even. And it says they're running. It uses this, this verb running. And in verse 20 then it says... And when he had said, and when he had so said, speaking of Jesus here, and showed unto them his hands and his side, then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. So, and I noticed in our in our reading in Luke this morning how that again those words running came out. I, I just picture this excitement, and whenever Jesus spoke to them there in Luke, it says that they were just. How does it say they were overcome with joy, or there was there was joy? Use the word joy anyway, and um, I just find this this um, exciting. I guess here were these people; they were bummed out. Their, their their Lord had been crucified, and here was an unexpected to them. They should have expected it, but it was unexpected. This event that 
hey, he's not dead after all. And you can almost just feel that excitement. I mean, can you imagine a person that you very well thought was dead would come back to life? Would that make you excited this morning? I dare say that it would. Especially if it's somebody that you really loved and you just, you just hated to see loss like that. So another question I have for us to consider, <clears throat> is it possible for us to lose the power and the excitement that the resurrection brings to our lives? And I want to back up and say that, you know, Jesus died and he rose for the whole world. Every person in the world can experience that same power and that same excitement. However, the per- it's also very exclusive. You have to accept that. You have to. You, there's a procedure that we have to go through to get that power. We have to lay down our lives. We have to die with Christ. We have to be risen again uh, with Him. That's why that the person out here on the street of Hayfield or wherever town you want to name, um, there's many people out there that are not experiencing the power that the resurrection can bring because they have not availed themselves of that power. So how about us? Is it possible for us to have the power and the excitement and then lose it? I would say that that is possible, and that's the, that's the thrust of my, of my talk here this morning. I want us, if, we, if we feel like that's waning, I would like us to recapture that. How, what can we do? What, what are some things that we can do to bring that, that resurrection power and excitement back into our lives. Well, why do we lose it? Well, perhaps perhaps, there, perhaps we never had the power. Perhaps that's the case. In that case, we didn't lose it. We never had it. And thus, we don't have the excitement that goes with it because we've never experienced it. Another thing I think that happens is, um, mark my word, all hell is waiting with something to offer you other than resurrection power. Okay, that's, that is the goal of Satan and his minions, is to give you a counterfeit and to offer you an easier way. All right? That would be his goal. If he could trip you up and make you think there's another way, he will, take that, he will take that to advantage and he will do that for you. I think another thing that happens to us sometimes is um, while the resurrection brings us power, it certainly does, brings excitement, the Christian life is indeed a battle. I think we understand that. I think you as Christians, and, and, and I understand that. Now, are battles fun things? Yeah, not really. We don't really like that a lot. They're relentless, and uh, sometimes we just tire of it. And we, we become cynical of the thing. And um, we're like, well, wh- where is it? Where is that joy that I once knew if I ever had it? Where is it? Where did it go? Um, and so thus we become, you know... We lose it. We lose the excitement and thus the power. I'd like to read for you a few verses here, just random verses that, that talk about um, this, this power that we should have in our lives. Romans 6.4 says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Consider the alternative of this verse. Um, and consider the power that is exemplified. How do we measure the power that brought Jesus back from the dead? 
Is that something we can measure in horsepower? Is that something we can measure in uh, watts or volts or megabytes? I don't understand that. I don't understand that, that power. But it says here in Romans 6, it says that it was by the glory of the Father. Can you describe to me the glory of the Father? That's the power that brought him back. And that same glory that brought back Jesus is the same glory that makes you and I walk in newness of life. Romans 8.11 says this, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. So here it tells us that it was the Spirit of God that raised up Jesus from the dead. 1 Corinthians 6.14 And God hath both raised up the Lord and will raise us by His own power. All right, so we're going to spend the rest of our times in the book of Colossians. Turn with me to Colossians. And I'm going to spend the um, remainder of our time in Colossians 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. And what we're going to do is, this is describing a person that has been risen with Christ, as verse 1 says. And we're going to go down through this, this, these few verses, and we're going to pick out things that will exemplify a person that understands resurrection power. Verse 1, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, vows of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So if you go back to, uh, to verse 1, I want to get the context. If you, if you jump back just, just prior to, to verse 1 into, into chapter 2, starting at verse 20, I'm going to read these verses. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world... Why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, 
which are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things <coughs> have indeed a show <coughs> excuse me, of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. All right, so the, the whole if ye then be risen in verse 3 kicks us back into chapter 2. What's this actually saying here in chapter 2? First of all, if we're going to be risen with Christ, we must die to the facade of false and worldly religion that looks good and it appears wise, but it gives absolutely no meaningful change. And that, that's brought out there in verse, in verse 23. You know, it talks about in verse 20, 21, 22, that... Um, the rudiments of the world will, will, will lay down law. It will say, don't touch this, don't handle this, don't do this, don't do that. And it says, which things are indeed a show of wisdom and will worship. In other words, it's, it's an appearance of a self-imposed religion. It's a worldly religion. But it does nothing. Absolutely nothing. You could That last phrase there we could read, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. It does not help the inner man. It does not do anything to change that person's heart. So first of all, let's get rid of that. Then, in chapter 3, let's talk about the person that's truly risen with Christ. If you are risen, if you've laid aside that false and worldly religion and you're truly risen, there's going to be a change. And it's going to be obvious. If a person rises from the dead... Is there a question whether that happened or not? I mean, is there a question? Did, did, did the disciples question if they saw Jesus? I've never seen anybody rise from the dead. But i got to believe that if it did, I, I wouldn't have a real difficult time believing that it happened, I guess. Same thing with, uh, with a person that's been changed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and been resurrected with him. There must be a change. There can't be this thing... Uh, well, yes, I identify with Christ, but nothing's changed. That can't be. I think sometimes we have bought too much into the idea that, you know what, we're sinners. And indeed we are. But look, if we avail ourselves of the power that Jesus has given to us, we do not have to live in perpetual and constant sin. Um, yes, there's pressing. Yes, there's striving. Yes, there's going to be work involved in a Christian life. But look, we can take possession of unconquered territory. We can do that if we're risen with Christ. And that's, that is my burden this morning, that we, that we understand where we have ground that needs to be conquered and take it. We can do that. We have the power to do it. Let's do that. So, what are some evidences? of this person that's risen with Christ. First of all, he seeks those things which are above. Very foundational. Doesn't that ring so similar to Jesus' teaching? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek those things that are above. Well, let's talk about this a little bit. What does it mean to seek? If I seek, I am working. I'm putting forth some effort. But it's a concentrated, concerted effort. And it is my first order of business. That is, that is what I'm after. Jesus says, seek first. Paul says here, seek the things that are above. In other words, get your head above the temporal. Quit playing church. Quit having a form of godliness, but denying the power. Okay? 
Seek also has this this um, this uh, thought of worshiping. So you think about it. If we worship the things that are down here, how far are we going to get? You, you know where that ends. The things of this earth are not going to last very long. But if we worship the things that are above, the things that are above these elements, suddenly they become precious to us. Uh, whatever we worship will indeed become precious to us. And we can prioritize correctly. Um, there are things that in this world that we, going back to chapter 2, that we won't touch, taste, or handle. Those things are going to be there. However, I want the reason we don't touch or taste or handle these various things to be the right reason. I want it to be because I have decided in my heart that I'm not going to do that. By the power of God, I'm not going to do that. And I'm not just going to lay some sort of a facade of a religion down that I won't do that. Somehow that's going to save me. I want you to have a different reason. You and I to have a different reason for not touching and tasting and handling. I want us to look above. Verse 2, he goes on and he says, Now after you've sought those things that are above, then set your affection on things that are not on the earth. Things that are above. Things on the earth and things on the above tend to be diametrically opposed to each other. Tend to. At least the things that we tend to set our hearts on tend to be opposed to each other. And to repeat myself, we tend to work harder on things that have our hearts. And that is why Jesus says in, in, uh, in his teaching that um, look to see where your treasure is. Where your treasure is, that will have your heart. We tend to want to turn that around and say, look where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. Um, not so. Jesus says, look where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And we, we, and we tend to uh, deceive ourselves into thinking it works the other way around. But if a thing has our affection and it's above, our perspective will change. Our perspective will. And only a person that has, that has enjoyed resurrection chain will, will, will have this affection. All right. The third thing I see is in verse 3. Bumping down through here. We are dead and our life is hid with Christ in God. All right. So... I just said we had, we had risen. What are we dead to? Well, we're dead to these, um, <clears throat> these rudiments of the world that it talks about in verse 20 of chapter 2. So if we're dead to the things of the world and our life is hid, if something's hid, you can't see it anymore. It's hid. But it's hid with Christ in God. What is the essence of our life? The essence of our life is Christ, right? When people look at you and me, they should see a reflection of Christ. Our personal agendas are gone. The things that we once held dearly, gone. Christ has become number one in our lives. It becomes our essence. It becomes the essence of our life. In verse 4, that bring, that's brought out. It says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we shall also appear with him in glory. So it's extremely important that we understand what this is to die, hide our life with Christ, because when he appears, that's how we will appear with him in glory. All right, so let's, let's die. Die with Christ. All right, verse, uh, verse 5 brings out the fourth thing. Mortify therefore the members that are upon the earth. All right, so I don't need to tell you this, but when we mortify something, that means it's gone, it's slain, it's put to death. 
It's not just subdued. It's put to death. Uh, the Israelites ran into this problem whenever they were taking, the, the, taking over the land of Canaan that God had promised to them. It says that some, some areas they just put them to, um, how does it put that again? Not servitude, that's not the, the word it, it, it uses. But it, 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 they put them to, um, they became their servants, in other words, these people. Rather than finishing them off, they became their servants. And because they chose not to finish those Canaanites off, they became a, a huge source of, of uh, problem for them, a huge temptation. It's the, it's the folks that many times ended up um, um, leading the Israelite people astray. So if we if we're going to mortify something, we're going to put it to death. And look what we're going to put to death: the things, the members which are upon the earth. Again, there's this there's this emphasis on things that are upon the earth. And then it gives this interesting list that uh, Paul through the Spirit um, puts down here: fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. I find this interesting that the first three, four things that he puts down there, we, we somewhat understand. Um, it, it's basically impurity, um, sexual vice, these sorts of things. And, and, and that's right. We want no part, nothing to do with that. But then he tucks in that little word covetousness. And uh, again, covetousness um, is, is the meaning of the word covetousness in the New Testament many times is not what we actually think of as covetousness. Generally, we think of it as, as me being jealous that you know Arnie has a boat or something, you know something you know that I want, and I'm and I'm covetous of that thing. Well, not so much. The, the meaning of, of this it would be more that I I just can't get enough. I just want to accumulate and accumulate, want more. I'm just never satisfied with with money and the things that go with that. I think that it's interesting that he tucks that in there with this other stuff that we say, we want absolutely no part of it. We don't want any part to do with sexual vice and all that stuff. That's, that's horrible. And then he says, well, you know, how about this accumulation of, of wealth or this occupation of uh, just, just being overly occupied with accumulating things? I would dare say, and, and I might be wrong here, this is just a guess of mine, but I'm guessing that these are probably two of the most... Um, Two of the vices that humankind face that are, are the hardest to shake. Sexual vice and the, the accumulation of wealth. I've never met a man yet. Well, I shouldn't say that. I think, I think there, are, there are some people out there that understand this. And, and I hope we do too. But for sure, an ungodly person never has enough. I mean, when, when do you say it's enough? Is a million enough? Well, once you hit a million, I want two. Then I want three. And it, it, you never hit... A point where you say, I have enough. You always want more. And you become overly occupied with that. Paul here through the Spirit says, put it to death. Stop it. Going on to the fifth thing, verses 8 and 9. I see here that all sins of the, of the tongue will be suppressed. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication. And then in verse 9 he says, lie not. Well, how filthy does our communication have to get before it's filthy? Uh, how dirty can it get? And I'm not going to be, belabor that real long, but, you know, Jesus says in one place, let our yea be yea and our nay nay, and I think that's wise advice. 
Um, let's be clean people. Let's not, let's not see how close to the filth we can get before we become dirty. I also thought it was interesting how that um, uh, Paul puts in here, lie not one to another. I thought, well, you know, he's writing to a church. He's writing to, to people that I believe were Christian people. And yet he says, don't lie to each other. Like, what's up with that? I mean, you know, typically I don't expect, you know, you folks to lie to me, and I hope you don't expect that I would lie to you. What's up with, what, what was Paul getting at here? And I'm not sure that I know exactly, but I'll just make this comment. Um, honesty is a, is a very rare commodity in today's world, and you understand that. Um, you, don't have to, you don't have to proceed very far in this world to you, to you understand that. So, Perhaps he's just emphasizing honesty. Be honest. Be honest people. Be people that are known to be honest. But beyond that, we can lie to each other uh, in more ways than just telling a fib. Okay? We, can, uh, we can pretend to be something. We can be hypocritical. We can be pretentious. We can, um, we can try to avoid being our real person so that you think better of me than I than I really ought to be thought of, see. And so these are things that, that are common to man. This is, this is things we have to, we have to grapple with. Let's, let's be transparent, honest people. Honest before God, honest before men. Um, that's part of our, our whole council meeting thing that we'll have next Sunday. You know, Self-examination, honesty before God and man. Sixth thing I see is in verse 10. Um, we have a completely new way of thinking and a complete new way of incorporating knowledge. We walk to a different drummer and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. So we, we understand that. The, if we're an image of something, we're a likeness of something. So if we're the likeness of Christ, God, who created us, why then, there's certainly going to be a different way of thinking about things. Um, a resurrected mind is not a worldly mind. I think you understand that. Um, we are reprogrammed. We are changed. I shouldn't say reprogrammed. We've we got a whole new mind. It's, it's, a different, it's a different way of thinking. And uh, certainly, I hope that we can exude that as we, as we walk the resurrected, resurrected life. Seventh thing I see is in verse 11, and that is um, there, all man-made barriers are broken down for the resurrected person. He talks about Jews and Greeks, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond, or free. Christ is all and in all. Well, what's a barbarian? Well, a barbarian to these people here in Colossians and Colossae were people that didn't, didn't speak the Greek language. And so, therefore, they were considered uncivilized. They were, they were, they were pegged down. If you understand social order? They were down, down here somewhere. The, the Scythians were perhaps a notch below that. These folks were known for their brutality and considered little more than an animal. All right? So, barbarians and Scythians. Now, the Greeks and Jews, on the other hand, we understand that. Um, the Greeks, they were the elite thinkers of the day. The Jews were the elite religion, religious people of the day. But Paul here says, we're all equal. Once, once we um, meet Christ at the foot of the cross, if we're a Greek and we meet up with a barbarian at the foot of the cross, level playing field. 
We understand that. Hopefully we do. You know, many times wealth and education play a huge role in social rank, but that's not so with the resurrected person. Our differences will actually complement each other. Jesus can take that city and that barbarian. He can change his mind just as much as the Jew and the Greek. We can sit together at the same table. We can partake of the same Lord's Supper, and we can complement each other in our differences. Verse, the, the eighth thing I see is in verse 12 to 14. Here we have our relationships described, and I won't uh, linger long on this one, but um, he talks about putting on bowels of mercy. Um, we don't often talk of in that language, but a heart of mercy would be another way of putting it. Do we have hearts of empathy? Are we kind to each other? How about the humbleness of mind? Um, I was so, I found it so interesting at Bible school here this past um, year, uh, one speaker talking about the meaning of humbleness of mind. Uh, the word humble and the word humus come from the same background, same word. So if I have humbleness of mind, that means my mind is down in the dirt, down there somewhere. That's, that's my estimation of my thoughts and my, you know, my grand ideas. Humus in the dirt, all right? So what would happen if we all had minds that were in the dirt? Well, for one thing, it would be pretty hard to get hurt because we're already down there. It's pretty hard to get kicked if you're already in the dirt. And number two... Um, I would see your idea as the grandest idea ever, see? Um, I, would, I would esteem you as an equal or above myself. That, that would go a long way for in our relationships many times. How about long-suffering, patience? Um, to those that are immature, to those who have opposing ideas, or to those who have erred. If I just extended patience to those folks. Um, how about if I for forbear with you. Um, what does it mean to forbear? Well, that means that um, uh, I'm willing to, should I use the word put up with? That doesn't sound quite right, but I, I'm willing to accept you, okay? I'm willing to accept, I'm willing to forbear with you. Uh, if you. If you put a burr in my saddle, I'll just take the burr out. I won't allow that thing to stay there in my saddle very long. The NIV puts it like this, for forgive whatever grievances you may hold against each other. And then in, in uh, verse 14, it says, And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond or the glue of perfectness. Put on charity. Exercise charity. The ninth thing I see is in verse 15, the peace of God. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. The resurrected person will have the peace of God rooted in his very heart. Jesus said that he's going to leave peace with us that's going to be different than what the world gives. And I fear too many times we are much more, more than ready to settle for worldly peace. What is worldly peace? Well, the other, in our Sunday school lessons here a while back, um, Somebody said, I think it was Ellis, said that the world has come to see peace as basically an absence of warfare. And i got to agree with that statement. Uh, basically, if we can just keep the guns from going off, we have peace. Is that Christian peace? I dare say not. Um, there's too many times, though, that we 
get this idea that as long as we don't have our guns aimed on each other, we have peace. Well, I'd like to say that heavenly peace, or the peace of God, brings rest, and rest brings peace. Um, perhaps sometimes the unrest we feel in our circles is actually a reflection of the, of the lack of the resurrected life exuding the peace of God. It says, let it rule in your heart. Um, are rules intended to be broken? You know the answer to that, don't you? Um, let's not break that rule. When we break rules, less than desirable things happen. In another place, it talks about peace that passeth understanding. What that means is the peace of God surpasses or excels the intellect. It's really hard for me to get up here and just explain to you exactly what the peace of God is. But if you've experienced that, you understand it. All right, the tenth thing I see is in verse 16. It says, let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom. In other words, let Christ's word dwell or inhabit, be at home. Is Christ's word at home in your heart? Talks about richly. When I, when I'm uh, when I have something richly, I have copious quantities of it. Are you are you are you good with a little sliver of God's word? Are you good with a little sliver of Jesus' words, or do you want just copious quantities, just inhabiting your life? If you do, I will assure you that you will live a resurrected life. And I th- and I think it's interesting how how that verse goes on. Once we have this Word of God that's inhabiting our lives in, in copious quantities, then I can teach and admonish you and you can do the same to me. All right? Um, there would be so much to learn. There is so much to learn whenever we have a, a church, a body of believers that uh, can teach and admonish each other. I like that. Everyone has something to offer. And then... Um, I like how he says, we'll not only do this in word, I would assume he's, he's thinking of that, but we'll also do it in song. Uh, it, will, it will affect our music. Isn't that great? The word of God will, will end up affecting our, our preaching, our teaching, our music, um, all these different things. I see the summary here in verse 17. It says, well, whatever you do. In other words, he goes through all these things, and I haven't even hit them all. You probably think of more things. But he just sums it up and he says, well, whatever you do, whatever it is, whether it's in word or whether it's in deed or whatever it is, uh, just do everything in the name of, of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, whatever you and I do, is it reflecting or is it risen Savior? Uh, we, we talked about that a bit in the Sunday school lesson again. Um, it should. If it doesn't, Perhaps we need to go back and visit with the one who rose from the grave. Because that very power that brought Jesus from the grave is available to you, it's available to me, and it's available to help us live above the elements of this world. And the world so desperately needs people like that. So desperately. Well, I trust you have been um, inspired as I was as we looked here at Colossians 3. Um, I like the memory verse, that uh, the adult memory verse, and I'm just going to read that in, in closing here again. I, uh, I didn't even realize it was the, the memory verse until uh, Ryan quoted it there. But it says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. Praise God for that.